0: Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come now. Lord, would you open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our minds, that we might hear from you, we might see you, we might know you more deeply. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, there are storylines... Uh, and stories in which the sequel, which means the second in the storyline, is an absolute failure. For your consideration, I offer the following examples. Space Jam, colon, A New Legacy. (laughs) LeBron, I don't think so, bud. The Next Karate Kid. Teen Wolf 2, that's T-O-O, not the numeral. You messed it up with the title there, guys. Jim Carrey's Son of the Mask. Didn't know there was a sequel to that one. The Bad News Bears Go to Japan. Really? Okay. I didn't know this. Paul Blart, Mall Cop 2. (laughs) A sad list, to be sure. But not all is lost when it comes to sequels. I offer the following shining examples for your consideration. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Did you know it was a sequel? T2, any 80s kids? Oh yeah, Hasta La Vista, baby. The Empire Strikes Back, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. That's like for sure better. (laughs) Shrek number two. Mm -hmm. It's a maybe, it's a maybe. My favorite. Santa Claus 2. Charlie is on the naughty list. Scott falls in love with his principal. Her name is Carol. It's all very good stuff. Please watch it, like today. It's a feast day. Well, there are a few uh, sequels in the Bible, a few examples or stories in the Bible wherein the sequel just knocks it out of the park, where the second of it, that thing or that person... Knocks it out of the park. Take the case of the two Adams. Sounds a bit like an Agatha Christie title, doesn't it? The two Adams. Let's start with the first, Genesis chapter 3, the first Adam. Here's the scene. The earth, the sky, the stars, all the animals have already been created, and then the Trinity forms a man out of the dust, out of the ground. The Trinity breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man becomes a living being. Then it was found that Adam was uh, feeling alone, and so God put him to sleep and formed Woman out of one of Adam's ribs, and then they were married. A lot of firsts in the first two chapters of Genesis. We have the first garden, the first wombat, the first mountain, the first whale shark, the first continent— the first sun, the first moon, and of course, the first Adam. Things are really good for a bit. Adam and Eve are naked. They are unashamed in this perfect garden. There is nothing, not one single thing between them. No marital wounds, no family baggage, no bad dates, not even clothes. There is also nothing between them and God. He walks around in the garden with them. They talk face to face. It's literally perfect. Eat as much as you want. Have a forever date. Be giddy. Enjoy perfection to the hilt. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is awesome. But then we turn to chapter 3. Here's where we pick it up. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? To which the woman said to the snake, well, we may eat, from, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden But did God say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die? You certainly will not die, he said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom... She took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked and so they sewed fig trees, fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. The first Adam failed to listen to God well. He failed to push back against his wife when she, had been, when she had fallen prey to the serpent. He failed to take responsibility for his own sin. And as a result of their failures, that perfect garden, that perfect nakedness between husband and wife, between mankind and God, all that perfection gets fractured and broken and marred beyond recognition. But, good news, there's a second Adam that's put into play rather quickly. It's called the Proto Ewangelion. It's the first time the gospel is proclaimed, and it's just eight verses later. It says this I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. We're gonna come back to this Proto Ewangelion, this first mention of the gospel. But hold this question in your mind. For the next forty five minutes of our sermon. I'm kidding. (laughs) I think. We'll see. It's Lent, guys. Okay? Here's the question How will the enemy be defeated? How's this serpent? How how is this enemy going to be defeated? So we see the first Adam is a complete flop. The first few minutes were pretty fire, and then the whole thing goes to trash. Not so much. This same serpent who connived and tricked our first parents has continued to push women and men to do really horrible things over the next centuries and millennia, although mostly by men, just saying. But about 2,000 years ago, Eve's seed par excellence made his humble entrance into Bethlehem. It wasn't exactly a royal coronation, but the stakes could not be higher. Enter the second Adam, Jesus. Jesus. At the end of Matthew chapter 3, we read of John baptizing Jesus. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. And he, John, saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon Jesus. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then immediately after the affirming words from the Father regarding Jesus' true identity, he's sent by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. There, Jesus would prove what the Father just said about him, and also what John had said just prior to that. And we read that Jesus enters into a fast from food and water for 40 days And Matthew pulls a bit of a Captain Obvious in verse 2. He says, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah, say so. Uh, Whenever I fast, I'm hungry 40 minutes into it. Okay? And it was after Jesus had been alone in the wilderness for 40 days, sans food and beverage, mind you, this is when the serpent shows up to assail him. Okay? He hasn't eaten or had anything to drink, or had any companionship for 40 days. And now the enemy comes to him. Verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. It's a pretty good one, right? Like he's, he's very hungry. And he has the power to do it. This temptation harkens back to Exodus chapter 16 when the whole community of Israel was grumbling against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food that we wanted, but you, Moses and Aaron, have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. The key difference being Deuteronomy 8.3. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Israel had manna, Jesus did not. And this refrain from Deuteronomy 8.3 is exactly what Jesus quotes back to Satan, The words from the Father were and are more important to Jesus than physical nourishment or comfort. As a man named Daniel Dorian synthesized well, you'll see it here on the screen. To make sense, to find satisfaction in this life, we need God's word. Because Jesus knew this, he could look beyond his hunger, his desire for bread. He could refuse the bread that was good, but not at this time By the Father's will. Thus, he passed the test that Israel failed. He did not live for physical satisfaction. He was the one true Israelite. I want to highlight some contrasts between our atoms regarding these episodes of temptation. The first is the difference in geography Eden was perfect, it's San Diego on its absolute best day you've been to San Diego, you know what I'm talking about, okay? Judean wilderness, it's a desert. It is not San Diego. It is not San Diego on its worst day. It is not anywhere close to California on its worst day. Like, it's not good. So there's a clear difference in the geographies at play in these two episodes of Temptation. Secondly, there's a difference in satiation levels. I may have just made that word up. I'm not sure. Jesus is super hungry, and he's super thirsty, and he's super alone. Adam, conversely, he's able to eat as much as he wanted from every single fruit tree. Every single one except just one. Adam is also with his wife, they're on a forever date, and they're newlyweds. These are stark differences. One of these things is not like the other. Our second Adam passes this temptation with flying colors. Now to the next one. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Since Jesus quoted scripture, Ol Scratch thought that he'd try and trick Jesus by misappropriating scripture. He's doing this to see if he could catch him. If he could catch him the same way that he caught Adam and Eve, because the serpent quoted Scripture rightly at one point, but incorrectly at others. Good biblical theologian, hermeneutically prudent man that he is, Jesus lives into the first principle of hermeneutics, which is this. Scripture is its own interpreter. In other words, we are inter- in, we are to interpret Scripture with other Scripture. God does not lie, and His Word is unified and in accord with itself. So Jesus reminds the serpent, appropriately, with Scripture. Well, it is also written, "Do not put the Lord your God to the test." Again, our second Adam passes this temptation with flying colors. Now on to the last one, verse eight. Again. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor. And he said, all of this I will give you if you'll just bow down and worship me. This one is the most sinister and it's the least veiled. He's showing all of his cards. It's what I believe to be Satan's primary desire. It's to be worshipped like God. This is why he threw a coup. In heaven, He was jealous of God, even though he was the most dazzling of all the angels. Adolf Hitler made a notation in his diary. It says this. Today, I have made a covenant with Satan for all the kingdoms of the world and for all of their glory. Hitler wanted to be worshipped. One of the primary ways you can be worshipped is to own the world. To be in charge, the supreme leader. By any means necessary. Um, I don't know if you know this, but deals with the devil are real. They're real things. Um, I know of a personal story of, uh, of someone who Who was offered a deal, um, and he would get control of, interestingly enough, uh, kind of the drug landscape in San Diego. Um, He would get to take it over from his brother, and um, there was only one catch: he would have to murder his best friend. Um, And I know that best friend really well. Um, What? What deal with the devil guy didn't know is that the Holy Spirit had impressed upon um, would-be murdered guy, his parents, that something was up in the spiritual realm. And so his parents start fasting and praying, and they know that there's this great evil coming for their son. Anyway, it's a crazy story. I know him. He's still alive. Satan didn't win. His plans got foiled, but it happened through prayer and fasting. Okay. If you want to hear that story, we need 30 minutes. Okay, That's, that's a long, long coffee. Satan was trying to get Jesus to cut the corner. To not go through with the process. And there's a lot of theology that we could drill down on here. But I want us to focus on just one of those theological caverns. Jesus would be king. But not this way. He had to walk to Golgotha. He had to do this in order for you and I to be reconciled. R.C. Sproul put it well. The price of Jesus' inheritance was Calvary. Satan was offering glory without any necessary suffering and humiliation. For the joy set before him, he endured. Thank you, Lord. We do not deserve it. So our second Adam responds with Scripture again, and he says, get away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him. Behold, angels came and ministered to him. The fast is over. I agree with Sproul that uh, angels probably brought breakfast, angel food cake, of course. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> thought it was pretty good when I wrote it. And so the devil leaves him in this moment, but he never stops stalking him. He's constantly watching. He's looking for a way to trap and tempt him, or ways in which he might tempt others to trap Jesus. But Jesus prevailed, he led a sinless life. This was part of his role as the second Adam. He was called to do what the first Adam failed to do. This is what we heard earlier in Romans chapter 5. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as did Adam, who is a pattern, of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Jesus' perfect obedience was and is necessary for our salvation. The spotless Paschal Lamb who came to take away the sins of the world, he had to suffer and he had to die. Our first Adam failed rather quickly. The second Adam prevailed over the serpent in the desert. He prevailed over the serpent at Golgotha, and now he sits, a, he sits enthroned. And that enthroned one is taking us to a better Eden, a sequel, if you will. One where the serpent no longer slithers, where wounds and pain do not reside, where temptation is absent, but we're not there yet, are we? No, we are not. That same devil who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden is the same devil who tempted Jesus in the wilderness, and he's the same devil who assails you and I. He has one job, and he's rather proficient at it. If you just watch the news, you'll see it you pay attention to your own manner of life, you'll see it. Um, temptation comes in many forms, doesn't it? Some of them uh, come from our own sin nature that we inherited from our first parents. Thanks. Some of it comes from the serpent and all of his devils. Sometimes they're subtle and sneaky. Sometimes they are overt and obvious in Jesus' baptism, Matthew 3, we see Jesus receive the Spirit. Then in chapter 4, in his time in the wilderness, we see Jesus being led by the Spirit, and we also see him relying on Scripture to get through. Then when he comes out of the wilderness, we see him empowered by the Spirit for mission and ministry. Now, there is not a one-to-one for our Lenten fasts, but we can say for certain that our fasting from the things that we've chosen to during this season, it's going to help us focus more on God. It's going to help us focus more on God and less on our own comfort, and that in and of itself is good. It teaches us to lean more on Him. You and I, we need God's word more than we need comfort. It's really hard for us. It's part of why we do this seasonally. It teaches us, it shapes us, it molds us. You and I need close fellowship with him to resist the tempter who seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy um, last Wednesday, a few days ago, you and I were invited into a holy Lent. That was by self-examination and repentance, by prayer and fasting and self-denial. This is, what also, this is also what this uh, introduction says in the Book of Common Prayer. And by reading and meditating on God's holy word. Do we remember that piece of Lent? That we are to gorge ourselves... On the scriptures? We started uh, Wednesday with the imposition of ashes. That's a physical reminder of our mortality and our spiritual penitence. My encouragement is that you would continue in your fasts. Continue in your penitence. Continue in your meditating Meditation on God's word over against your comforts. It's good. It shapes you. It helps you. But we don't do those things as a badge. We do those things to draw near to God, and by them, you are doing such. It's beyond worth it. Rely on the Spirit. Rely on the Scriptures. Let's pray. Jesus thank you that the sequel was far better than the first. God thank you that you withstood temptation. God thank you that you you did what Adam could not, the first Adam. And God I thank you that it's only in you that we are saved and it's only in you and by the power of your spirit and submission to your word that we're able to resist temptation. Lord, that we're able to live a godly and righteous life. Spirit, this season, would you help us, we pray, to draw closer to you. This is our desire, Lord. Amen.